Well, now we're going to talk food because British food writer B. Wilson's new book, The Secret of Cooking, also gives up secrets on how to take the stress out of life. Alongside recipes, there's encouragement to improvise, a very useful section on learning to cook by experimenting with a bag of carrots and also on repurposing an unloved wedding ring. Bee cooked her way through her husband leaving and their divorce and rekindled her appetite for life. She's a campaigner for food education through the charity Tasted and also writes the Table Talk column for the Wall Street Journal. For people who are time poor, cooking can often be a chore. But for Bee, cooking sits in the self-care box. Part of why I wrote this book is I realised that even though I'm someone that's been obsessed with cooking all my life, I've been a food writer for a very long time, I suddenly realised a few years ago that I was stressed about cooking, not the lovely kind of weekend meals you might make for friends when you've got lots of time and you can plan and you can get to a food market. But that kind of day in, day out cooking that you're doing for kids. And one of my kids was a very picky eater. And it doesn't necessarily feel fun. It can feel really stressful. But what I'm trying to say is that we, if we keep reinforcing the message that cooking has to be stressful, it becomes a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy And I think we spend so long in the modern world talking about the problems with cooking that we can miss the ways in which cooking itself is exactly what we need. It's the greatest of all remedies for stress. And as I write in the book, I mean, I didn't realise this was going to happen when I started the project. I had kept, it was 2020, we were going through the first lockdown in the UK with the pandemic. And I kept saying to people, oh, we're so happy, we're so lucky. And then completely out of the blue to me, my husband of... 23 years suddenly left me for another woman and I really needed something to help me through and in a way to my own surprise cooking was the thing I'd been writing these things saying cooking is great and cooking can do this and that and then I lived the truth of it that it was one of the very few things that made me feel better rather than worse. When your husband walked out he made a bit of a point about food What was that like for you when that was clearly your life's work? Yeah, I mean, I'd always known that food was something that mattered a lot more to me than it did to him. I mean, actually, I think, yeah, he he made this comment at one point where he just said, oh, all of this food you cook, it means nothing to me. I don't actually think that's true. I think in the heat of relationships ending people say all sorts of things and he will have had his own reasons for saying that um I do think it's true that human beings vary in the extent to which food is something alongside being something fuel and sustenance and nourishment that it's also something really meaningful and for me it's how I express love it's it's a kind of it's a craft it's it's something creative. It makes me feel like being a child again, kind of playing with mud pies. I love it. I mean, it it was a hurtful thing to say because when you have been cooking huge amounts of, my mind just kind of scrolled back through all of the birthday cakes I'd made for him and all of the meals we'd shared and all of the times I'd lit candles and got something on the table. On the other hand, I have to say, given that food meant so much less to him than it did to me, he's done me the biggest favour in the world because even cooking in that sad, lonely state. I have a chapter in the book on cooking for one, 
which again I was sort of doing in real time as for the first time ever my kids were going off and having dinner with their dad instead of with me and I was first of all thinking what do I do with myself and then I realized well for millions of people around the world cooking for one is just the norm it's just life and it's hardly reflected in cookbooks where it always says serves four and I realized if I'm gonna have these meals by myself I may as well enjoy them and I realized there can be a kind of beauty and just cooking to please yourself like I certainly felt that my meals were meaningful and I could be more appreciative of them maybe than he had been. You did cook your way through the the breakup the divorce in that immediate shock what did going into the kitchen give you? It gave me so many things all at once, some emotional and some very practical. Um, One thing it gave me, I mean, my mother at the time, she sadly since died after I finished writing the book, but she was suffering from dementia. She was in a care home. Suddenly, because of the pandemic, I couldn't visit her. But I had her wooden spoon. And on some days, my legs were like jelly, but I just found that holding on to this friendly handle of my mother's wooden spoon could sort of just about keep me upright. So that's a deeply emotional connection that was linking me to my happy childhood memories of food. And I could just picture her in the kitchen with an apron on decades ago. So it was kind of a sort of tra- time travel, I think, which cooking offers to any of us that if you're somewhere where you don't want to be, you can escape. And you can also kind of travel to other countries, even ones you've never visited before. You can buy a cookbook with the cuisine of some country that you yearn to visit. And I did a lot of that too. But also, I think it's got this wonderful thing. It's so rare for us in the modern world. For most of us, obviously, some people do work with their hands for a living, but it's no longer the norm in the way that it once was. And so actually, to make something and look down and think, well, I feel completely rubbish, but look at these waffles I've just made for my son. They worked and they're all golden brown and crispy. It sort of reminded me of my own competence. And I just wanted to kind of hold out a hand to other people that are in, you know, life throws us all kinds of stuff, doesn't it, all the time. And to say, this is something that cooking can do for you. It can make you feel great about yourself, about your ability to make something. And at the end, you've actually got the food to eat too. Yeah, it does remind you of your strength. Um, And when your husband left, what were some of the foods that you wanted to make, that you you craved, that you turned to? What was your comfort food and what what does that mean to you? There were a huge number. I mean, I think comfort food can mean lots of different things. I think often in our culture it's defined very narrowly as just kind of very indulgent foods and desserts and... There are quite a lot of desserts in the book that I was developing at the time, and there were only three of us in the house at the time to eat them because my husband had left. My older son was studying away at college, so it was me, my daughter, my younger son. Um, So and the very final recipe in the book is my daughter's chocolate cake, which is called Tasha's Never Failed Chocolate Cake. So that obviously is kind of classic comfort food, as many people would think of it. But for me... Some of the greatest comfort foods are just any form of soup. And there's something about that act of cradling a bowl. And there's something about the thought that there's the huge um, pan or pressure cooker full of something 
that you can return to over many meals. And when I say soup, I don't necessarily just mean something. People mean so many different things by soup. I have a recipe in the book, which I made so many times. It became our pandemic lunch that I made in a hundred different forms. Um, and in the book, I call it adaptable ash, named after a whole family of Persian soups called ash, which are kind of, it's more like a stew really than a soup. It's depending on the day, depending on my mood and what's in my fridge. It has some kind of panned beans or chickpeas. It will have something like some short pasta, maybe some rice. It will have some vegetables. It will have some herbs. It will have some olive oil. It will taste really good for you, but in a hearty way. Um, and it's a way of kind of using up supplies. That to me is comfort food because it ticks so many boxes at once. I guess cooking as well, like you mentioned, it's it's good to work with your hands. It's good to create things. It's something that reminds you of your strength. Are these the sorts of elements that, that make it that antidote to modern life? Um, because you can't just be looking at your phone, because you can't be answering emails necessarily. You, you kind of have to get out of your head and, and get into the kitchen. Exactly. It's, it's such a multi-sensory activity. Like, I think... Partly, again, because we shop so often at supermarkets, we're really deprived of that experience of kind of smelling food before we buy it. And there's something, but you can do it in your own kitchen of just like when you're chopping those herbs, just inhale slightly more deeply. Just kind of notice how completely amazing hazelnuts smell when you're toasting them before you're going to add them to a pavlova. I have, I think talking of comfort food, I have a raspberry ripple and hazelnut pavlova. That probably is, again, more the classic comfort food. Um, yeah, I think it's it's almost shocking the extent to which a lot of the time we're living and eating with our senses switched off. And it's so much fun just to experience that a bit. And I'm not saying, as you said, a lot of people, all of us, to some degree, are time poor, or at least on any given day, we also have the same 24 hours that our grandparents had, but it just doesn't feel like that because there are so many demands. So I'm not saying you necessarily want to be doing everything in a slow and laborious way, but even, I mean, I have 10 minute recipes in the book. I have a 10 minute chana masala. That's just 10 minutes of spices and good smells and just a little burst of something that isn't looking at a computer. And to cut yourself some slack. Totally, to cut yourself some slack. So I'm a huge believer in taking shortcuts where you can take shortcuts. Yeah, the very first chapter is called Cut Yourself Some Slack because I feel lots of people that don't cook, as you said at the beginning, like some people just really think they don't enjoy it. We all have different reasons we don't cook, Why, when we don't cook. But when I put out on Twitter, if you find cooking hard or scary, why is it? So many people just said, it's just so hard or... They just kind of felt that there was this level of perfection that they saw chefs on TV attaining and they felt they'd never be capable of that. Mm. So my feeling is if you can just give yourself like easier, approachable, accessible ways of doing something that mean you're in the kitchen a bit, that has to be a good thing. Like there's there's no kind of perfect cooking police watching you, judging the fact that you're taking shortcuts and that you're buying cans of beans rather than always soaking them yourself. It's all good. You say to people, just get started. Um, 
which I guess is good advice. Just just give it a go and see what happens and not everything has to be, you know, perfectly Instagrammably beautiful. Where would you start? I mean, one I have a section called Teach Yourself to Cook with a Carrot because I'm trying to say, like famously, the way you learn to do something that is with your hands and which cooking so much is, is through muscle memory. It's through doing it lots and lots of times and then maybe failing and doing it again. The problem with cooking is you don't want to fail because then you've ended up with a really disappointing dinner. And also the cost of ingredients, particularly now with inflation, cost of living crisis, is huge. So I'm trying to say if you take something incredibly affordable and accessible, like a bag of carrots, you can actually teach yourself a whole range of knife skills. You can cut them into coins and sear them in a pan, which adds so much flavor so quickly. Or you can cut them into um, tiny julienne batons and make them into a kind of almost instant Indian pickle with some lovely seeds and a bit of herbs at the end and a squeeze of lemon juice. Or you can make these butter poached carrots, which if you're of the kind of old feeling you want vegetables on the side school of cookery, it, that is the simplest, best way I've ever made vegetables in my life for that kind of just, you just want something that's a touch more flavoursome than boiling it. And it's so much easier as well. And um, by the time you've done those, and there's also actually one of my favourite simple recipes in the book, there's like gochujang carrots, like there's this Korean paste, which is a lot easier to buy now than it used to be. And it's a bit like miso. It's really savoury and delicious, but it's also got chilli in it. And if you've got that, you just cut the carrots. It's a method called roll cutting, which sounds fancy, but it just means you kind of cut it into diagonal, really chunky pieces. Gochujang, spring onions. Basically, a bag of carrots, add a bit of tofu if you want, add some noodles. That's lunch. And it's so delicious and satisfying. So then the thought is, if you can roast a carrot, you can probably roast a chicken as well. You're listening to Saturday Morning with Susie Ferguson here on RNZ National. My guest is B. Wilson, the food writer, her new book, The Secret of Cooking. You're a big fan of some of those kitchen tools that so many people will have in their, you know, in their drawers, but they maybe don't pull them out all that often, like the box grater. I love my box grater, I have to say. Good. I'm very glad you love your box grater. I'm happy to hear it. What do you use it for? Um, I Well, last night I had a, um, a salad of carrot and raw beetroot that were both grated mm. and some herbs and some olive oil um, and some really lovely zingy vinegar. And it, I think it took about mm, maybe five minutes to make. Yes. So good. So simple. Exactly. Now, I'm, what I'm trying to say in the section on tools is I say kind of use the tools you have, get the tools you need. So often we spend, like we're, we're sold these messages that in order to be a good cook or a better cook, whatever that means, that you need to buy really expensive gadgetry. And so I just wanted to like sing a little song of praise for the trusty old box grater, which pretty much all of us have somewhere in a drawer or on a cupboard in our kitchen. And it's so versatile. And yeah, just like you said, you can make the most wonderful salad out of raw root vegetables in five minutes and it's healthy and sort of something about the texture of those grated vegetables that's so pleasing. Or you can take it 
grate some tomatoes, add a slab of butter, a bit of basil, some chili flakes, and you have the loveliest fresh pasta sauce. Just put it over the heat with a pinch of flaky salt in about five minutes. And if you happen to have some prawns or shrimp to add at the end, you could, but you don't need to. I suppose I'm interested as well in how people, um, you know, you say you can travel with recipe books and, and that's true, you can. But that can sometimes lead to people feeling quite overwhelmed with the amount of, you know, different spices or sauces or, you know, as you were mentioning, there's there's this, you know, the Korean sauces or there's miso or there's um, all manner of things that people think they maybe have to have in their pantry. But also you have to get to that point with cooking where you're not rigidly following a recipe anymore and the science perhaps also incorporates an art where you know how long it will take, where you begin to approximate, or you think, oh, I haven't got any of that chilli paste, so I'll use this other chilli sauce that I've got instead. That's such a good point. I hugely agree with that. I mean, that's, I'm trying to say to people, learn the art of substituting. But a bit as with teachers have to cook with a carrot, it's one of those chicken and egg things that until you've got the confidence to do it, it can feel extremely intimidating. Like I meet so many people who say, like, I just don't change anything in the recipe in case something goes wrong. So I think it's something where you just have to start. If you think about the function of what any given ingredient is doing in a dish, like why is the lemon juice there? Okay, it's for sourness. So if I don't have a lemon, I can use lime juice or I can use rice vinegar or thinking you're absolutely right that as lovely as it is to explore different cuisines, you can get that slight sense of overwhelm of like, how many different chilli sauces do I have in my fridge? And then it can be wonderful just to realise, okay, well, the recipe says I need harissa, but it's going to be just as delicious with Chinese chilli bean paste instead. Um, And I think it's, it's just one of those things, as with everything with cooking, the more you do it, the more it becomes second nature. Um, And you realise that, Ottolenghi or Nigella or whoever it is, they're not actually watching over your shoulder, telling you off because you're using parsley instead of coriander. <laughs> it's fine. They're very happy with you doing that. What would be some of your absolute basics? Absolute basics as in things you would want to have in your repertoire? Well, absolute basics as in things you would want to have in your pantry. Oh, ingredients. I mean, some that are just so obvious. I mean, I think you need... A good oil, I don't think you need lots of good oils. I mean, what I say in the book is I use olive oil for pretty much everything because I think the main thing with oil is get one and then use it up. Having said which, the prices of olive oil, I don't know how the price is in New Zealand. In the UK, it's suddenly just shot up Mm. because this perfect storm to do with climate change and then olive trees are suffering this um, rare disease which has suddenly hit in certain countries had I known how expensive olive oil would be now, I don't know if I'd have said that. So I don't like want to say you've got to have this one particular oil. A lot of people are switching to cold-pressed rapeseed oil. Um, but for me still, I've got the olive oil. Well, it's in my pantry. I'm going to use it up. Olive oil, salt, lemons. I just am such a big believer in the idea that often when you think something needs a pinch more salt and you keep adding more and more salt and it just kind of deadens it, what it actually needs is that squeeze of sharpness. Um, I would always want to have Parmesan cheese because I just think it is an amazing thing, not just to add to pasta, but it kind of seasons things. 
Um, and then beyond that, garlic is completely essential in my book. I feel like everything beyond that is personal. Like there are certain things I could say that I always have, like there's certain ingredients I probably overuse. Like when I was writing the cookbook, I was slightly obsessed with sushi, vin- sushi ginger, sorry, pickled ginger, um, which I think is, that's one of those ones that you might think, oh, you're going to get it and then have it in your fridge and are you going to use it up? And I suddenly realised above and beyond Japanese cooking, it's just such a great ingredient that you can use, like when you run out of fresh ginger, I have a recipe for a lamb kima, which um, in the past, when I learned to make it originally from a Mada Jaffrey recipe, I absolutely would have used root ginger. But one day I just didn't have any root ginger, thought how will the pickled ginger taste, loved the way it tasted. So in a way, I don't want to recommend to other people, your pantry must have this or must have that. Um, because the glory is that you might discover different things. I mean, I'd always want to have eggs, ideally. I'd always want to have canned tomatoes. Quite obvious things, really. But sometimes when you run out of stuff, that can also be liberating. And I write about the fact that, again, this was a pandemic thing, but there was a point when suddenly there were these shortages of onions in the UK and I had always thought, oh, I can't cook at all without an onion. Like, take an onion is practically the once upon a time beginning of every recipe. And then it kind of forced me to think about things anew. And I went from shop to shop, couldn't find onions, eventually went into a Chinese supermarket. And he also didn't have onions. But he said this brilliant thing, so fantastic, this guy in the shop. And he just said, well, I've got spring onions or scallions over there. And I've also got these tubs of fried shallots. You could get either of those. And I thought, oh, yes, I can get both of those. And actually, the two of those together were such an interesting substitute for the standard brown onion I've been using all these years. So sometimes I think it's good to let the pantry stores run down and then sort of figure out anew what you actually want to eat. If that in itself can be a bit liberating and cooking for yourself can be liberating... How do you feel about eating by yourself? I like it, but I like eating well. I mean, I, obviously, eating with company, eating with a friend, eating, I still eat with my son pretty much every night. Um, it's Eating with other people is a total joy, but I have to say I love eating alone. Um, and maybe I'm saying that partly. My kids are very spaced out in age. My oldest is 24. My youngest is just turned 15. So I've kind of hardly, except for post-divorce, very rarely been eating alone for the best part of a quarter of a century. So that maybe puts me in a particular situation that you might not feel if you're eating alone for year upon year. But I kind of love the thing of putting on a podcast, listening to the radio or some good music, reading a book, um, and just focusing on the food. What music do you listen to when you're cooking? When I'm cooking, it varies. I mean, I talk in the book about how if you kind of want the time to pass quicker when you're cooking, stop using a kitchen timer and start timing things by songs. Like, I especially do that for washing up. Like, when my son and I are doing the washing up, like, we'll just say, I think this is a three-song job. But like he, he will always pick stuff like the Beatles and their songs are a bit too short. And I'll say, can't we pick a Stevie Wonder song? <laughs> and Stevie Wonder songs sometimes go on for like eight minutes. So it's like tricking me into the fact there's actually loads washing up. Um, 
when I'm if I picture myself doing a kind of idealized cooking on a Saturday afternoon, I might be listening to something like some Billy Holiday, some like really old fashioned jazz, or I love Django Reinhardt, that kind of music. I, don't, I listen to a whole range of stuff. It really depends who else is in the kitchen with me. Mm. You talk there about post-divorce, uh, eating alone. You've got to tell me what you did with your wedding ring. Yes. <laughs> um, I mean, when I put this out um, in the world, I wrote about this in The Guardian before the cookbook came out. And then so many divorced people wrote to me and it was very moving, actually, saying that they'd also had problems with what to do with wedding rings. So after he left, I fairly soon after that took my ring off and then I just put it in a little bowl in my bedroom. But it just gave me this horrible kind of spooky, rejected feeling every time I walked past it. But I didn't know what to do with it because it's a wedding. Like It's not that it was a valuable wedding ring, but it's, you know, the, the associations of that. It's not an easy thing just to give away or get rid of. And then I was reading this Syrian cookbook that had this recipe for something called burnt finger lentils, which basically lentils cooked with some pomegranate molasses and some other things, loads of fried onions, loads of chopped green coriander. Um, but on top of it, it had these croutons. And it, the recipe was explaining that they'd learned how to make it from a Syrian woman who'd used her wedding ring. And I thought, perfect, <laughs> do that. And it was really strange just by repurposing the ring as a little tiny pastry cutter. It suddenly felt like I was in a different space. And I now keep the ring. It's still in a little bowl, but it's now on a dresser near the kitchen. I very often don't. It's quite laborious getting out a wedding ring just to cut out croutons. In that recipe, I do say if you don't have this reason for doing it, you can just chop up some flatbreads with some kitchen scissors and put it in the oven. And that's a lot quicker. But it was weird how it you can actually kind of repurpose an object and it makes you feel quite different. Mm, it sounds very itself. sort of therapeutic almost. It was. It really was. And then other divorce people, as I said, have said other things, not necessarily culinary things, but one person said they turned their ring into a pendant um, and another person had done something else with it. Like, I think it's, it's strange. We can sometimes feel almost... Um, trapped by objects and then when you figure out something else to do with it it unlocks something and you feel much better and that is b wilson there uh, the secret of cooking is her latest book which is published by harper collins let me know if you have tried using your wedding ring whether it's a current one or a past one as a pastry cutter i love that idea